In 2006, three babies in Indianapolis died when they received adult doses of heparin. The same mistake happened at the same hospital five years earlier. Recently, media attention has focused on the exact same thing, this time in Los Angeles with the twins of actor Dennis Quaid. Why can't we seem to learn from our mistakes? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is John Nance. John is a decorated military pilot, attorney, global airline safety expert, and one of the founding members of the National Patient Safety Foundation. He is the author of the recently published, Why Hospitals Should Fly, the Ultimate Flight Plan to Patient Safety and Quality Care. Welcome to ReachMD, John. Thank you, Leslie. It's good to be with you. John, why don't you fill us in on the heparin tragedies? Give us the background. Well, this is one of those things where we had a dress rehearsal, uh, and uh, then we had a repeat, as you mentioned, in uh, Indianapolis with tragic results with three babies. But we did not have a systemic way of really informing the entirety of the medical world that HEPLOC, the uh, pediatric version of heparin and heparin itself, uh, can easily be mixed up. And the labels were really the problem, but the fact was that even if the pharmaceutical company had not taken or did not or ultimately did not until after another tragedy make a move to make those more different, the fact is that the medical profession itself had no method of communicating universally. In aviation, just to give you an example, and I know aviation is just one of several industries like this that can do it, but aviation stands out because if we have a problem with, for instance, a Boeing 737 this afternoon, by tomorrow morning, every operator of a 737 on the planet will know what the problem was and how, if we do have an answer, how to solve it. Now, agreed, that is an individual machine. We're talking about human beings, but human beings are very similar, and we do have a responsibility to make sure that we do not have to have 15 or 20 or 1,000 deaths from the same cause, like, for instance, undiluted potassium chloride left on a unit in undiluted fashion, which eventually will get injected and stop a heart. That was hit list number one item for the Joint Commission a number of years ago because we killed thousands before we realized that needs to be pulled off the units. Now, in the case of heparin and heplock, the Dennis Quaid case was a repeat of what happened in Indianapolis. And they had had uh, problems in the past with mixes of uh, medication. In this case, there wasn't even a Pixis involved. But the medication got in the hands of the nurse. It was the wrong stuff. It was the adult version, and it got injected. This must not happen again, but it should never have happened a second time. How can we learn from how aviation has handled these sorts of things? You know, it seems overwhelming in your scenario that if, if we had a Boeing 737 with something wrong to have it in everybody's hands the next day, how realistically could we do that in a system so vast as the medical system? Actually, a lot easier than you might think. If we have an ability to give alerts in areas, uh, for instance, in pediatrics, there are specific things just like this. Now, thanks to the fact that it was Dennis Quaid and that he's a, a famous individual, most everyone in healthcare has heard about this, and that message has now gotten around. But we need a method that doesn't involve a near miss or a tragedy involving a famous individual or their child in order to make sure that, for instance, a doctor who comes in for an operation on a particular day has a little list of alerts to look at, very short, very sweet, very to the point of things that might affect his or her practice. If we have the ability to share our information outside of waiting for lawsuits to bring it out, which sometimes takes 10 years, we can change this thing very rapidly. The second part is we still have this approach that there is a root cause to every problem. Well, there is no such thing as a root cause and a root cause analysis. It's root causes. There is never 
just one reason for a medical mistake that impacts a patient or could impact a patient. If we look at all the things that contribute, we will fix systems much, much more rapidly than we do now. And for instance, if it's not just a matter that a nurse made a mistake, but all of the things that supported that mistake, we can probably interdict 15 other mistakes in the future that are dissimilar in terms of their final impact, but had the same causation pattern. In other words, problems with the pixels, problems with the medication chain, problems with communication. Every accident or incident has a unique chain out of which we can derive all sorts of things that need to be immediately altered. But who has the time to look at that complex set of events? Well, of course, I could turn that around and say, who can afford not to? But in fact, the reality is that every hospital has a risk manager. Many hospitals now have people who are uh, responsible in a larger sense for instituting safety. And certainly we know since the IOM report in 1999 that this is not something that can be bypassed or considered to be something your quality program takes care of. Of. So whatever it takes, and then boards are understanding this more and more as our CEOs, that if they do not have an infrastructure that can take care of looking at these items and certainly extracting every possible piece of information from their own internal failures, then they are continuing to put themselves out in a way that certainly in the current legal system almost guarantees not only a tragedy for the patients, but a tragedy legally for the hospital. Because if anybody out there thinks that the attorney's The plaintiff attorneys do not understand the latest cutting-edge methodologies of communication problems and how to fix them, etc. Think again. They certainly do, and we just don't have the luxury of time in medicine to sit around and wait for something to develop. We've got to take the aggressive steps to take the information from each and every accident, near-miss, etc., and repair the system. Uh, Whatever it takes is what we have to do. But in order to do that, don't people have to admit that there was a mistake made? Well, that's another fascinating area. First of all, the cultural change that has to occur here is going to probably take 20 to 25 years to be fully realized. Now, that doesn't mean we can't change things in a particular hospital in three to six months. You just have to maintain your hand on that throttle of change for a long period of time. But what happens here is also a process of learning to say, and I teach docs to do this, and they are much the better for it, as they will tell you afterwards, just like I had to as a captain and aircraft commander in the Air Force. I had to learn to stop saying, I am a senior leader, so therefore I am perfect, and be a leader by saying, you know, I'm very good at what I do. I'm a very good doctor. I'm a very good aircraft commander, but I am a human, and I am incapable of being perfect. I very seldom make mistakes, but when I do, my pride is in knowing that and in being ready, willing, and able to take that mistake and publicize it so that nobody else will follow down that same path, including me. Now, that takes a lot of courage, but that's the world that we are now creating, and where we create it, we have people who are eager to exchange information about things that went wrong so they can make them not go wrong again. Bad English, good concept. If you are new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is John Nance. We were discussing medical mistakes. John, one of the most incendiary statements in your book, at least to me, was that we should all assume that meds are lethal until proven otherwise. Tell us about that. Well, when you look at, as I have, thousands of medication disasters, in almost every incidence, there is an assumption. We're back to those three, assumption, communication, and perception. We have an assumption that the medicine that that nurse is taking to the bedside is the right medication, the right dose, and she's getting ready or he's getting ready to put it in in the right method of application every time. Now, when you turn that assumption around, if we could do it, 
if we could change the assumption, we would cause another check, another level of concern to be there each and every time. And in so many, many, many cases, that would have made the difference. I can't tell you how many of these reports end with a nurse having said, you know, I had a feeling something was wrong, but I didn't have any validation of it, and I was really busy. I mean, we overwork nurses as it is. We have a medication chain that has anywhere between 70 and 75 potential steps for errors along the way, and the last best chance is that nurse approaching the bedside with that medicine. Now, we try to teach the patients and their families these days to be very overt and hopefully respectfully so in saying, wait a minute, you've got two red pills in here. I need to know what those are. But really, it ultimately comes down to the professionals. So if you can turn this assumption around, here's how it works. The first stage of a safety system is doing everything you can to minimize human error. And we do that very well, and we're doing it increasingly well. But at the end of the day, human error is still going to occur. So the second stage, or the second tier, as I teach it, is that you build the system to prepare to absorb all those human mistakes, which you know are going to still occur from time to time. But once we've done that, if we don't also come in with the expectation that things can still go wrong, then we end up, unfortunately, creating an atmosphere in which we don't check any further. And that's where in medication, because it's so lethal and it's so often the cause of so many disasters, if we could turn the thinking of every nurse and every doctor around that every medication is poison until I prove it to myself otherwise, we would instill another layer of checks that would have a tremendous effect on improving the system in terms of the reliability of the medication application. I think it's a great idea. And something as simple as just reading it back, you mentioned in the book, may save somebody's life. You know, it's it's amazing to me coming out of aviation, even with 20 years in medicine, that this is not standard. But we learned in aviation that 12.5% of the time minimum, people who have the same language and understand each other on most other ways basically garble their communication. 12.5% of the time, we don't get it right. And it goes up if you're tired. It goes up if you've got linguistic differences, different cultures involved, etc. So when we look at an order given by a physician or even a senior nurse or anybody that could have disastrous consequences if not followed exactly right, there is no justification for not reading that back and requiring a readback. Heck, this day and time, if you order something by phone, likely is not somebody is going to read that back to you. We owe at least the same consideration to our patients. John, I was shocked to read in your book also that physical space, especially in the intensive care unit, strongly influences the likelihood of mistakes. Um, tell us about that. I think it has been suspected for a long time, but we've really got some hard evidence now. A new study, uh, this was in nursing research in uh, 2007, the May and June issue, talked about the fact that of the mistakes that they cataloged and the mistakes that are rather common and potentially lethal, they said that 46 percentile of the mistakes that they cataloged came in part from a noisy work environment. 36% were influenced by a crowded environment and 26% influenced by just systemic insufficient space for paperwork. Now, you look at that and, you know, one of the things that I've heard people say is, well, they ought to toughen up. They ought to be able to work in that kind of environment. Yeah, they do toughen up and they do work in that kind of an environment. But just like our experiments in rats about uh, 50 years ago, I think actually close to 60 years ago, where they found that when they overcrowded rats, they began to attack each other. We have some truths in how human beings operate together. And when you crowd them in and you make it noisy and you distract them, they're not going to be attacking each other so much as they're going to be making mistakes because they cannot concentrate to the degree we would like to have them concentrate. These are important things that we've also learned in nuclear power in an application of human factors to the control room of a nuclear power plant where there is no room for mistake. 
you've got to get it right. If something goes wrong with that reactor, you've got to get it right right now. They need to have a low noise level. They need to have a high potential for concentration and a lot of space for paperwork. And we need to do the very same thing in ICUs. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us today, John. Thank you. We've been discussing how to change our culture so that we learn from our medical mistakes with our guest today, Dr. John Nance. He's the author of the book, Why Hospitals Should Fly, The Ultimate Flight Plan to Patient Safety and Quality Care. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you'll receive six months of free streaming internet for your home or office. If you have comments or questions, give us a ring at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Dr. John Jernigan with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, and you're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.